In our evenings together, we have been uh, going through the book of Samuel, and we have been uh, noting not only the rise of uh, the monarchy in the nation of Israel, but we have been also tracing the life of David. And we have been looking at how in David we see many uh, uh, anticipations or pictures even of what the Messiah would be like, what the greater king would ultimately accomplish. This evening we're coming to chapter 19 and uh, we're picking up uh, um, back at verse 8. So we'll be uh, beginning there in the middle of the, of the verse. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I, do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. 
He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day that the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Giladite had come down from Meragalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord uh, the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? 
Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Have you ever made a really bad decision? Probably at some point you can think of a decision in your life that you look back on as a really foolish decision to have made. But when you make that decision, you may realize that the action that you have taken, the course of action, was not the right one. But it may become more and more apparent just how foolish it is. And when you think back, maybe in your own experience of some time when you made a bad uh, decision, you will remember and you will be faced with the fact of how do I respond to this? I made a bad choice, but do I carry on with that choice because this is the way that I have set myself up? Or do I reevaluate things? Do I turn course and say, even though this is going to be difficult, I have to reevaluate the decisions that I've been making? This evening we are looking at the people of Israel. The people of Israel had made a choice. They had chosen to reject David as their king. They had chosen to replace him with David's son, a man named Absalom. But it was a bad choice that they had made, a foolish choice, we could say. And the folly of their choice became more and more apparent by the events that unfolded before them. After Absalom had taken over Jerusalem and David had fled from the city, you'll remember that Hushai had told Absalom to mount up a, a, an army to go out and to wipe out all the loyalists of David. But when the battle ensued, we're told that Absalom himself went down into battle. And it just so happened that Absalom himself was struck down in that battle. Absalom died. And so all the people who had given their allegiance to Absalom now had no leader. And they had provoked the anger of their king. They had rejected their true king and they had given their loyalty to someone who was not going to be able to lead them. And now they're faced with this awkward situation as to what do we do next? Do we just carry on? Or do we turn back and hope that maybe David will become our king once again? And this evening as we're looking at this, we want to see how David ultimately is restored to the throne. And we want to consider how David treats those who rebelled against him. We want to think about this chapter in two thoughts. We want to think about the return to the king. And then we want to think about the restoration with the king. Well, first we have the return to the king. Or we could even say the repentance of Israel. It tells us there in verse 8 that after uh, all of these events took place, after Absalom dies at the hands of Joab and his armor bearers, after these events unfold, it says that now Israel had fled every man to his own house. The people scattered. They no longer have someone that they're united under. But they're not just physically scattering. They are also being divided in terms of how they think about the situation and how they're going to move forward, as becomes clear uh, in the verses that follow. The people uh, were in a great struggle. You see that in verse 9. It says, and all the people were arguing. That word arguing is translated, for instance, in the King James as at strife. 
There was a legal struggle that was going on in the people of Israel, and they weren't all unanimous as to how to think about the situation. That struggle that existed was, how do we think through this? Do we turn and honor the covenant that we made with David? Do we turn to David now saying, we did make him king? Do we revive that relationship? Or do we just carry on with what we formally accepted was rejecting David in, in favor of a new king? And so there's a struggle going on within the tribes of Israel. And they're wrestling with what should they do next. And we're told that there were some of them who were giving their arguments of sympathy towards David. And their arguments are very straightforward. They said that David was always their savior. It was David who had delivered them from their enemies. It was David who had saved them from the Philistines. David is their true king. Furthermore, Absalom is dead. It's clear that we can't carry on the way things are. Absalom's not the way of the future. And so there was at least one party within the tribes of Israel that were saying, Absalom's gone. And David was always our real king. So why is no one talking about bringing him back? And what they're drawing attention to is not just the facts that everyone agrees to, but to the hesitancy, the reluctancy. Why is it that people recognize the situation and yet are at an impasse where they won't respond to that situation? And they're saying, why would we not reach out to David? Why would we not call on him? And so they're appealing to the others to return to David. We have to turn course. We have to acknowledge our mistake. We've made the wrong choice in rejecting David. We have to go back to him. But that's not a decision that is an easy one. It's not an easy one because you remember in chapter 18 that it told us that in that battle between David's men and the rest of Israel... There was a great loss. 20,000 were lost. And so for those who survived that battle, that's their relatives. That's their family. That's their friends. That's their kinsmen. They fought in a battle, opposing David, opposing this man. So now to suddenly receive David back, to welcome him back, to celebrate David as king would not be an easy thing to do. On top of that, it would be acknowledging that they made a mistake in the first place. And so all this, when they're asking the question, why is no one talking about calling out David? Why is no one talking about having the king return now? It's because they have rejected him. And the longer they have been rejecting David, the harder it is to change course. That's the way of human nature, isn't it? The further we go down this path, the harder it is for us to admit our wrongdoing. The harder it is for us to accept that we were wrong. The harder it is for us to swallow our pride. And so there's this contingency within Israel saying, David's our king. Absalom is dead. The facts are straightforward. Why aren't we getting David back? And others are at an impasse as to what to do next. 
But it tells us that as this is taking place, that David's, David is able to get wind of this rumbling. David hears that there is an interest in having him come back. And we see that this return to the king is not only something that is stewing in the people of Israel, but it's also something that is prompted by David himself. You see that in verses 10 and following. That as David hears wind of this, David then uh, uh, sends a message uh, to the priests, to Zadok and Abiathar. Remember those loyalists of his that stayed in Jerusalem. And he sends them a message that they would convey to the leaders of the tribe of Judah, the elders. And he wants them to convey this message to them that they themselves would be stirred to respond. And the message is very straightforward. He impresses upon them a number of things in order to initiate this reconciliation. The first is, is that he draws attention to the response of Israel. He says, why would you be the last to respond when others are already thinking about this course of action? Why are you being silent when others are talking about receiving me back as king? That David wants to talk about something that others are just not talking about. And so David impresses upon them the, the importance of responding, recognizing that the northern tribes have already expressed that desire to acknowledge David as their king. Why isn't Judah? Why isn't David's own tribe doing the same thing? Again, they rejected him. The tribe of Judah spearheads really this revolt against David. They're the ones that are fighting against David. And so here David is impressing upon them this uh, need to respond or at least to justify why they're not. Why would you not respond when others see things so clearly? So he appeals to them about the way that the rest of Israel is responding but he also appeals to them the relationship that they share. In verse 12, he says, You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? They were all kinsmen. And we can see David here saying, We are all fellow Israelites. We are all uh, descendants of Abraham. But it seems that David's saying a lot more when he says these words. When he says, you are my bone and my flesh, David is saying there's a bond that has been established between us. He's using the same language that the northern tribes used to David when they recognized him as king. You remember when the northern tribes gave their loyalty to David, they came to him and they said, we are your bone and your flesh. They weren't just simply saying, we're all Israelites here, so you can be king. They were saying, we recognize that by God's design, we are bonded together. We recognize that you are our king and we commit ourselves to you in loyalty. And so when David here appeals to the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, he's saying there is something that God has established. That God has established him as king and that they are his people. And that he has been commissioned to reign over them, to rule over them, to guide them, to be their deliverer. And he appeals to that relationship that God has established. 
And so he says I, that they are his bone and his flesh. There is this bond that exists. But then thirdly, uh, he says something else in this message uh, to the elders of Judah. In verse 13, he tells them, and he says, And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. Joab, you remember, was that man of violence. But he was also that man who did not honor David's command to protect Absalom. And so in giving this instruction, he's not only removing or demoting Joab, but he is extending grace to the commander of the enemy. Amasa was the commander-in-chief of Absalom's army. But here's David saying, I will extend restoration to this man who was fighting to kill me. I will receive him into the kingdom again, and he will have a place in my kingdom. There would have been many people who would have been reluctant to receive David back as king because what will happen when he comes? Is David going to be on a vendetta? Is David going to want revenge? And is he going to take names down of every person who fought in Absalom's army? Is he going to wipe out all those who were rebels? But here's David extending an olive branch, saying even the one who is the commander of Absalom's army has a place in my kingdom. That instead of receiving wrath, he will be restored in David's kingdom. And so that is meant to convey not just what Amasa can expect, but anyone could reasonably conclude that David would deal gently with all those who fought under Amasa as rebels too. If David is going to treat Amasa in this way, then we can expect that he's going to treat anyone who was a rebel in this uprising that was instigated under Absalom. David isn't interested in, in bringing vengeance or revenge. David wants restoration. David wants unity. David wants peace. And so as he's conveying this message to the people of Judah, it is a message showing the heart of the king, that he desires to restore a nation that has become divided. He wants them to return. And the return unto the king is one that is initiated by his message of peace. He communicates to them that in spite of their rebellion, they can be restored in his kingdom. Maybe we're sitting here this evening and we know that we have made a lot of bad choices in life. And maybe we've lived a bad lifestyle for quite a long time. But maybe we start to think to ourselves that God could only ever be angry with us because of our rebellion. And yet the good news of the gospel is, is that God extends, offers a peace, even with rebels, even with those who have continued on in their rebellion. There is still a place in his kingdom for those who return unto him. That's the message that God conveys to his people. Return unto me, says the Lord, 
for I have redeemed you. And so here we're told about how it is that David, who, was, who fled from Jerusalem, ultimately comes back to his people. He comes back to them as the people return to him, as the people request him, as the people call him to return, both he and all his servants. So we see something of a change in the, the people of Israel as they request uh, David to return. But we also see not only the, the return to the king by the people, but we also see the restoration uh, of the people with their king. In verses 16 and following, uh, we are given uh, different encounters that happen when David comes back, paralleling what happened when David fled. If you go back and you read over the chapters, you'll remember that there were three different narratives about what happened when David was fleeing. There was uh, the way he was being treated. And now in reverse order, those were having three narratives of how David is restored or how he returns uh, to the people of God. And in verse 16, we're uh, reintroduced to this man, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Behurim. He hurried down to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Do you remember who Shimei was? Shimei was that man who had cursed David. He was the man who, in a fury of anger, expressed his hatred of David and declared God's rejection of David. He was a man who threw stones at David. He was a man who had utterly rejected David. But now that David has suddenly been restored, now that David is suddenly being welcomed back into Jerusalem, he doesn't about face. And he's the first to rush down to meet David, seeking to secure uh, his own uh, standing in David's kingdom. He comes down to him uh, with a thousand men of Benjamin, not to fight, but he comes down with a thousand men of Benjamin to highlight that he's a man of influence and that he has secured the, the support of these Benjaminites to David's kingdom. He is able to make uh, them loyal to David again. So he did this to show something of his loyalty to David and of giving his support to David. He fell down uh, before the king acknowledging his wrongdoing and he confessed in verse 20, uh, your servant knows that I have sinned. Now maybe we're sitting here this evening and we're somewhat suspicious of Shimei's confession. Is this a genuine repentance or is this simply a forced confession? But the point is, is that Shimei comes and David is more interested in restoration than he is in simply wiping out his enemies. Yes, he's prompted to confess his wrongdoing. And yes, David's even pardon of Shimei uh, is uh, limited and temporary at best. But we're still seeing here something of the picture of what it means to be restored in God's kingdom. Just like the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're limited in what they can convey. But they do convey something real. They teach us how it is that our sins can be covered. They teach us the idea of substitution. They communicate to us something of the reality of God's wrath and judgment. But here we're seeing something genuine true. We're seeing something of how in God's kingdom the king extends pardon. 
to someone who doesn't deserve it. That Shimei is prompted to seek mercy. And yet David here gives his word, he promises him that he will not die. On the basis of David's promise, he's safe. And so Shimei here uh, comes seeking to find uh, 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 security, uh, and David gives it. Because David on this day is not wanting anyone to die. He is wanting to restore what has been divided. The picture here then uh, is limited and temporary, but it anticipates the work of Christ who forgives rebels and assures them of pardon. The Apostle Paul celebrates this. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who are to believe for eternal life. But I received mercy for this reason. Paul understood that not only was he pardoned of his sins, but it's an example of the way of the king. That he pardons rebels. That all who believe, that all who turn to the Lord Jesus will be pardoned of their sins and will be saved. And so Paul goes on to say to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To the high king be all praise. Because he's been delivered. And he has a place in God's kingdom. So what is the result of returning to the king? Here Shimei is received by the king. He's restored. He is pardoned. And he has promised that he will not die as David reigns. We are told that uh, others come out. Uh, Ziba as well is one that comes out. And Ziba, you remember, was a man who had uh, told David that Mephibosheth was wanting to recover the kingdom. And Ziba had brought goods to David. But Ziba is here someone else who comes out uh, to the aid of uh, David as well. But all of this happens as they come down to Gilgal. There in verse 15, the king came down to the Jordan and Judah came down to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over uh, the Jordan. Gilgal uh, was an important place, as was Jordan. And this is a most appropriate place for the king to return. You remember the Jordan uh, is the place where the Israel first crossed into the promised land many centuries earlier that they came into the promised land as they crossed over the Jordan. It marked a new beginning in the days of Joshua uh, as they came into the promised land. Gilgal was the first resting place for the Israelites when they came into the promised land. And in the days of Samuel, it was the place where they renewed the kingdom of God as they renewed themselves in their loyalty to God. So as David is returning to Jerusalem, 
it slows down to say the king came to the Jordan and he crosses over the Jordan and he's going to meet his people. And it's happening at Gilgal. All of this is highlighting it's a new beginning. It is a new beginning that is marked by a loyalty uh, to the king, the Lord's anointed. Ziba then uh, was, uh, came down to David uh, and uh, he greets him with his family. And then we're told of a second encounter uh, as David is being received again with Mephibosheth. In verse 24, it says, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king had departed until the day he came back in safety. Remember, Ziba said that Mephibosheth wanted to restore the kingdom of his father Saul. But when David comes back, it's clear that Mephibosheth had no such interest. He had the appearance of one who was mourning. He had not concocted any plot to take over the kingdom. But David here had already given the inheritance of Mephibosheth to Ziba. But as you look at Mephibosheth, here he marks, as one person highlights, all the characteristics of the Beatitudes. Here is a man who is mourning. Uh, he has uh, neither cared for his feet or his beard or his clothes since the time the king has been rejected. Here is a man who is meek and poor in spirit because he entrusts himself to the will of his king. He claims no right, but simply says, I was someone who was doomed to death and then entrusts himself to the care of the king to do what is right. He is a man who was persecuted. He was represented falsely by Ziba in order to capitalize off him. But rather than seeking revenge, Mephibosheth simply entrusts himself to his king. David makes a, uh, an abrupt decision to simply divide the land. Whether it's because David can't come to a certain conclusion as to who's telling the truth, or because he doesn't feel like he can not reward Ziba for Ziba's actions. Or perhaps he simply wants to see how Mephibosheth will respond to that action. Whatever the reason is, the effect is, is that it reveals something of Mephibosheth's heart. That Mephibosheth, through all of this, even when the half of his inheritance is taken, is willing to say, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. It showed that Mephibosheth really wasn't interested in his own wealth or his own power. He was simply delighting and content in his king. And those who have been restored in the king's favor will be satisfied with God's favor. And we see that in Mephibosheth. Those who have been reconciled with the king will show the marks uh, of Mephibosheth as well. So the restoration with the king, we see it in Shimei, the pardon that is offered to him, you shall not die on the basis of the king's promise. We see Mephibosheth uh, that is restored in the sight of the king as well and who is delighting in the king's return. But we also see uh, another encounter as the king returns in Barzillai. Barzillai was that wealthy man who also brought down food supplies to David. But David wants, wants to honor this man. Nothing that has been done for the king will be neglected. And David here seeks to bring him back to Jerusalem. But Barzillai is an older man 
and uh, instead uh, defers to ask that his servant is honored. And David promises that he will. He takes his servant, but also says, I will do what is good in your eyes. The king will not neglect the kindness that was shown, the loyalty that was shown to him in his time of humiliation. And so as we look at uh, the return of the king, the restoration with the king, it all comes back to how do we respond to our actions? The scriptures teach that, that like Israel, that our first parents rejected the high king, that our first parents rejected the high king in favor of giving their loyalty to Satan. They believed the lies of the evil one rather than entrusting themselves to the care of the king. And as a result, we now live without loyalty to God, not wanting to acknowledge God in our life, which is a form of rebellion. And we need to be restored to God. We need to be, uh, uh, we need to, uh, be made reconciled with God. But that's the good news. Is, is that God comes to us with a message of grace. That he communicates terms of peace and reconciliation. Paul himself says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There is a message of reconciliation. We can be saved through the Lord Jesus. We can be restored to the high king as we return to him in faith, as we acknowledge what God has done. But to return to the king is a hard thing. To return to God requires us to humble ourselves. It requires a work of God's grace that recognizes not only that I have made a wrong choice, but that I've been living in resistance to God. And instead turns to believe that God is worthy of our affections and our loyalties. Repentance over sin is hard, but the king offers his peace and his grace. How are we responding? Are we people who have an answer? Or have we been people who have now called the king and given our loyalty to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the experience of David and how he was rejected by his own people, Lord, we pray that we would see the rebelliousness in our own hearts and that we would recognize the need to change course. Lord, we ask that you would give us a repentant spirit that acknowledges uh, the wrongdoing that we have done, but also acknowledges the reality of the situation. And we pray that we would call upon you and find uh, uh, a, a, a state of mercy to be found in our God, knowing that you are God who promises that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus uh, will be saved, that they will not die, but will pass from death into life. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name.